Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, hello and welcome to Smart Investment Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management, and we got a great show planned out today. Uh, we're going to talk about the personal consumption expenditures came out, uh, which is also known as inflation. We'll discuss that. Tesla report earnings. We're going to go run over those numbers for you. Home price affordability, and also too, we'll we'll touch on the debt ceiling. Chase. Now, as always, you want to call into the show. That's what we're here for. You got a, a stock you're looking at. You got a, a company we like to call them instead of stocks. You know, people correlate the the stocks are too risky many times. So we talk, we call them companies, equities. We'll take a look at that for you. We still think there's a lot of great opportunities out there when looking at investing. You want to join the show? Phone number is eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. Again, eight three three two eight eight. 0973. And Chase, uh, in the beginning of the show, we always talk about three or four different subjects. I listed those subjects. These come from our uh, newsletter. Uh, we send that newsletter out at five o'clock on Friday. Uh, if you haven't signed up for the newsletter, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And right in the top bar, you'll see the newsletter. You can sign up there. But if you get the newsletter and you see something else on there you want to comment on, uh, you can give us a call here on the show as well to talk about that. Because we these are things that we look at throughout the week that would be important to investors and the economy. Uh, so if you get the newsletter and you say, gosh, you know, they didn't cover layoffs and, and overhiring. You know, you want to talk about that? We can do that for you. Um, and as always, as Chase said, we, we do like running over businesses, companies, equities. We're not going to use that dirty word called stocks to run over the fundamentals if it's a buy, sell, hold for you. But let's start off with the uh, Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, also known as PCE for December, came in with an annual growth rate of 5%. Now this is down from November level of 5.5%. Looking at the core PCE, which strips out energy and food is the indicator. Uh, the Fed closely monitors the inflation number, looks even better with an annual growth rate of 4.4%. I've heard people continue to use a CPI and say that inflation is running at three, more than three times the Fed's 2% target. And, and that is, a, again, extremely misleading. Talked about this a lot on the show. Is, is The core PCE is not nearly as high as the CPI. So, again, you, you look at that, two times three is six not 4.4. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I think it's a lot of, again, fear-mongering. It makes the headlines, oh my gosh, we got to crank those interest rates mm -hmm. higher, and the Fed's not going to lay off, and inflation's coming down, but it's still way too high. 4.4, really not that bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really not, not good, not yeah. good, but eh, not that bad. But I, I will say, overall, we still have work to do, but it again, is decelerating at a good rate, and I'm optimistic it will continue to improve as we progress towards the end of 2023. My projection is still that we will see one, maybe two quarter point hikes from the Fed, and then that rate would be maintained through the rest of the year. I do not see any rate cuts this year from the Fed, as I believe the economy will be better than many fear. You know, and, and, and this is why I kind of said in the beginning, so important to understand this information because you brought it up. People thinking, oh, you know, 2% target, inflation 
Well, no, what the Fed's looking at is the 4.4 um, is the number. So that's only twice as much. And if you're focusing on that 6% thinking, oh, it's, you know, rates are going to go to 8% and so forth, you're missing the boat and you're going to make bad investment decisions. You might even do something silly like try to time the market and go all to cash. That's not a wise thing to do. And it's been proven here that last year, I know some people did it. Um, you look at the markets uh, today, and we can't tell what we did, but you know the markets today, they're, they're up. So if you're trying to time it based on that, and then you get left behind, and then like, oh shoot, now, I don't know what the, I didn't look today, I think the S&P is about, I don't know, 6%, 8%, whatever. Um, now like, okay, it's gonna pull back. Oh shoot, now it goes up higher. And then what happens in September, said, well, I better get in now. And then you get in, and then bad news comes out. Oh shoot, now it dropped 4%. You start playing that game, which is a loser game. So that's why we give you this information to try to keep your financial emotions, we'll call it, uh, in check. And and the thing I look at as well is that not just the the fear of you know raking too, hiking too far, but again, there's a lot of people out there, and we've talked a lot about this, is the belief that there's gonna be rate cuts. and. I just don't see that happening because while the economy is slowing down, mm -hmm. I don't see it hitting a point where the Fed's going to be like, oh my gosh, we destroyed the economy. <laughs> now we need to cut rates, especially in 2023. Perhaps in 2024, we could have a rate cut, maybe. But I, I just still think there's enough strength in the underlying economy not to need a rate cut. And we need rates to be at a more normalized level, not what we've had for years. You can't have that easy money. That's where you get these huge spike in inflation, which is not good for the economy either. There needs to be kind of a, what I'll call like a Goldilocks type situation where rates are in a, a good spot. And I, I think that rate cuts, I just don't see any need for them this year. Things could change, obviously, but We'll have to see what happens there. And we'll say it's a possibility at the end of the year, but what would have to happen is the economy would have to slow down to cause a rate cut. And if that doesn't happen, and I, I, I don't believe it will either. Not even slow. It would have to decline, and I think decline substantially. Substantially. For, because yeah. we think, I still think we're going to have a recession. Yeah. But I don't think that recession is going to be bad enough to warrant a rate cut. Right. Right. Well, and technically, we already had a recession. Yeah. Had, what, Last two? year, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but but it's it's not going to be enough. There is still, we talked about all the money in the economy and so forth. So, um, And I, I do think that a recession will be healthy. And the reason for that is you actually saw consumer spending come down in this PCE report. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people, oh my gosh, that's terrible. And I saw some of that make the headlines. I think that is going to be very good. The reason for that is you saw the savings rate start to come back up. We still had a lot of excess savings, and uh, we're going to do a post on this, probably touch on this again, but there were so many excess savings that were built up during COVID. Well, people spent through those, so the savings rate contracted substantially to levels that were historically low. That could be problematic because now people may have to rely on too much debt. Debt is what derails the economy and the financial situation. If we can get to a more normalized level, well, yeah, people burn through all those excess savings, but now the savings rate has ticked back up to a more normalized level. That means consumer spending came back down, though. That, I think, is a healthy economy and leads to a good runway for the next decade. Rather than, yeah, if we keep things really low, spending still really high, people <laughs> are running on, on credit cards, running on debt. That's what could take down the economy substantially two, three, four years from now. Yeah, yeah. So, and these are things you got to look at, and and that's why we watch the data. We don't like do it, and it's like, okay, close the books, and well, what happened in November? No, we'll stay on top of this for you. We'll look at different things. If things do change, we'll keep you informed on that. 
also to why you can get the news out to help you out as well. Let's move on to a Tesla reporting earnings. Uh, they put in earnings, and they, they did very well. Uh, this sent the stock up as much as 11% that day in trading. I have been against Tesla for years, not because of the bad company, but because it was too richly valued. That is now changing. The earnings for, for Tesla uh, for December 2024 now stand up $5.79 with a price of the stock around 150 which has gone beyond that now. Uh, gives you a Ford PE of 25.9. And that's not great, obviously, but not as terrible as it was in the past. I remember, gosh, years ago, it was 1000 150 But when the stock was a, as low as $102, that would have been a forward P of around 17.6, much more reasonable. I'm not saying that Tesla is a buy. It still has more to drop or needs to see a larger increase in earnings for it to be considered a value. It is getting close. Maybe in a year or two, it, it could become a buy. And people might think we're crazy in like two years of saying, ah, man, Tesla looks good here. Uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> is that Brent and Chase saying, buy Tesla? What? <laughs> and I think it is funny because, uh, you know, I was talking to a client the other day and he was asking about, you know, some of these companies and will they ever become a value? And I, I, I said, I, I don't know when it could happen, but, you know, we've bought the alphabets, we've bought the apples, we've bought the Microsofts in the past, but when the valuations get too high, it's not a value company anymore. Companies can be a value company and a growth company at the same time, but we just want to make sure they're that value component. That's what we do. And the reason, you know, we missed Tesla Yeah, right. years ago. Would I have loved to buy Tesla 10 years ago? Yeah, <laughs> who wouldn't have? But you can never predict the future. And what Elon Musk has done there, it's quite remarkable. And that is something that you were kind of trying to predict the future, and things could have popped up that changed substantially, and that stock would have been worthless. They would have gone bankrupt. So things had to go perfect for this growth stock, and they did. Right. And, and congratulations if you did well on it. But I, I still think at the forward earnings multiple that it's trading at, now back above, obviously, 30 times future earnings. Yeah, the stock closed at, what, 177.90 on Friday. Yeah. It, it's it's just too expensive. And the, the perfection has to continue for Elon Musk and Tesla. And you're betting that it will. And you're betting that they'll continue to grow at 40% 40, 40 a year, perhaps, on terms of their sales, deliveries, earnings. And at some point, that growth will. So I don't know when. Maybe it's this year. Maybe it's next year. I did think it was interesting. They didn't provide full guidance for the year. He was kind of, I'm going to say, sly about his wording for the demand. Mm-hmm. And he's a he's a great marketer, yeah, smart guy, um, and it is the first car company in many years to make it through. I mean, you had DeLorean failed, Studebaker. There's there's been other ones that failed. His car company, he did pull it out. So you, you got to give him kudos for that. Um, but you still have to be careful because competition is there, and, and they do have a 15 percent profit margin, which is very positive as well, versus about 6.6 for the industry, but there's talk about cutting the prices of cars, more cars coming out in the EV side. So competition is not good. And that's why we won't pay for the stock. Stock was a low, like 101, uh, went up to 177, but it still had a high, I think of well over 400. Yeah. So you're still down a lot. So don't get too excited about the stock. Now we're back to saying, Nope, we don't like the stock. We think it's a sell, but at 101 with those earnings going forward, that did start to make sense, and it didn't. It wouldn't be a buy for us yeah. quite yet, but I think the PE then was around 14, maybe. And, and you could justify it, yeah, because right? Tesla is growing. Yeah. And, and again, we're not growth investors. 
So we understand we miss things. Don't get us wrong. We stick to our philosophy, though, because that helps ensure that we don't buy things that don't fit our build, and all of a sudden they go lower and we can't justify it. But you could justify a company trading at, you know, 15, 16, 17 times earnings if they have a nice growth rate. But, uh, again, I do worry. People talk, oh, Tesla's – I've talked about this before. It's not a car company. Funny enough, on CNBC the other day, they, they point out Tesla's sales. They have these bar graphs. I don't know. Looked like 90%. Oh, car sales. Car sales. <laughs> I, it is a car company. Right. It it, it's like saying a few years ago. Remember Apple had the same situation where right. Apple um, made a big miss on their iPhone sales. Right. And Well, that's their, their one-trick pony. That's all they have is the iPhones. And the stock plummeted. I think the same thing is going to happen with Tesla. If they miss on those car sales, it doesn't matter about the, the, the batteries and the solar part of their business because it doesn't matter right now in terms of the <laughs> overall bottom line. It, it's something that it's a car company. It's subject to that volatility. Another thing that cracked me up, I feel like I'm on a roll this morning, was the fact that I, saw, I was reading an article and that they had the most models for the EVs, but they were like counting the Model Y and the subsets of the Model Y. I'm like, no, no, you can't do you that. You can't do that. And the mo- to me, the Model Y and the Model Three look very similar to one another. I don't even know the difference of them. Yeah, and the Model Y is a little bit bigger. And and the other thing too is that uh, you know they talk about sort of technology and their technology. Well, well, I had the new Escalade, and I was shocked on Friday. Well, uh, no, Thursday night. I got home from work, turned the car off, and it said software update. Do this to update the software. Mm-hmm. Like wow, my Escalade's a technology car as well so and and again so does that mean that the legacy auto manufacturers should be trading at 20 times earnings they're software or, companies yeah they're software <laughs> so there's no discrepancy now because they, they can send softwares over the the airwaves that people are all excited about they have the self-driving technology that that tesla has you can argue that that cruise is ahead of tesla uh, right now obviously nobody has a pure service across the country so it's kind of hard i guess to 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 battle who is in the lead who's going to win because there's going to be puts and takes over time but they should trade at similar multiples once that growth slows for tesla right uh chase a lot of people you know real estate what's going on with it you got higher interest rates uh, prices starting to fall uh let's talk about the home price affordability and even with the recent declines in home prices there is still a major uh, affordability problem. In fact, looking at an, an affordability index from the National Association of Realtors, which is known as the NAR, shows we are still out of line with pre-pandemic levels. The index is based on home prices, medium family incomes, and mortgage rates. Over the 12 months prior to COVID, the index averaged 162, and the current estimate for January is a level of 106. The lower the number, means the higher the problem is for affordability. There are a few ways the number could get back to the pre-pandemic level of 162. First, the average mortgage rate would need to fall to about 2.6%. Not happening. (laughs) Next, family incomes would need to increase by about 50%. Not happening. (laughs) And finally, prices for homes would need to fall by about another third. Hmm. (laughs) The most likely case is a combination of all three factors, but unfortunately, I don't see rates coming anywhere close to the 2.6% level, nor do I see income spiking close to 50% 
Therefore, I do believe there's still more downside for home prices ahead. You know what was interesting about this is we pointed out it came from the National Association of Realtors. It's not somebody that's against housing. It's not somebody, oh, I, you know, I, I, they're trying to force housing down. And, and it's, a, it's an index. So it tells you, and I think it is going to be a combination of those three, but I, I do think it's going to be probably, and we will see incomes over time rise. We will see, I, I think, housing prices fall further. I, I, I don't think we'll see rates fall much further. I think they're going to range, we'll call it, I don't know, from 6 to 7% maybe on the yeah. mortgages. Um, but what has to happen, the easiest one to fall is, is going to be the price of homes. I don't think they'll fall by a third, but I think you could see another 10% because of supply-demand issues. And, and what could happen as well is it, it, it could just take time. Yeah. You know, old saying, time heals all wounds. But what could happen is, in essence is I think maybe 2024, 2025, you could see mortgage rates maybe closer to 5%. I think they, they will come back down to that type of level over time. So then you have that kind of pullback. That'll help a little bit with the affordability. It's not going back to, as we said, 2.6, even 3%, I don't see, especially on an average. Then also, too, you have the, the median incomes. You know, maybe over the next two, three years, it, it goes up by 10, 15%, let's say. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not making a projection <clears throat> on that median income, but just kind of pointing out that that could happen. And then the home prices, they do decline and then they kind of level out. Well, now you're giving more time for the mortgage rates and also. To, to decrease and incomes to increase, that would then help affordability, but that means that home prices don't go up for right. years. Right. <clears throat> and again, you brought the key factor, <clears throat> which is time, because it, it's not going to happen next week or next month. Uh, and I've, I've said to many people, I think the good time to buy a home is probably going to be in 2024 if you're trying to get a good price for it. Uh, there might be one or two things out there look pretty good, but based on these factors we just said, read, talked about for the National Association of Realtors, I, I would not be in a hurry to buy a home at this point in time. No. And, and you know, the, the thing I look at, too, is the supply of the homes. Is There's new listings. The number of new listings has actually declined year over year. But what's happening is the number of homes on the market is actually kind of stabilizing because what's happening is homes are staying on the market for longer. People can't sell them as fast. So what's going to could happen in theory is you're not selling the home as fast. So it's staying on the market. And even though you're not getting as many new listings, there's still more homes that are on the market for sale because they're just not moving because the demand's declined. Another thing too that I've been hearing, and I, I, I kind of want to find more information on this, is the Airbnb craze. Oh yeah. That has declined, cooled. cooled. Yeah. People bought these Airbnbs thinking they could cash flow, like, I don't know, by doing nothing and making $500,000 a month net. What, 500000 a month? I'm just kind of... That's I, a, I, I, there are people that during like COVID... You mean on selling that Airbnb, not just profits off of 500000 a month? Uh, depending on... I, I mean, I've heard of people... Depending on how much you put down and what the mortgage rates were, if you use more cash, there were some people that were making a lot of money off that Airbnb. Not, not cash flow. Uh, per month. I mean, cash flow per month because from the rents you would get not. Yes, right. cash flow per month from renting out your Airbnb. Not 500000 a month, though. No, 500 to 1000 500 to 1000 So not 500000 500 okay. to 1000 I didn't sleep well last yeah, night, so maybe okay, I misunderstood, okay. but I, yeah, okay. Yeah, $500, and it, it, $500 to 1000 a month cash flow. You, okay, now you know you. you know we talk fast, too, sometimes, <laughs> so that, that could have blended into 500000 and that'd be insane. You must have a, a very, very, very nice house or something. <laughs> right, <like that>. right. <laughs> but that has changed quite a bit. 
And those people now could potentially not be making those profits. Now, all of a sudden, they could start to be underwater on that Airbnb. They could be having to pay money into it. Yep. They might not have those those um, those renters, uh, the people coming, the short-term rentals coming in, and they're just sitting idly on the market. I've heard this is a, a growing problem. Well, so now that turns into, do you turn into a long-term rental? Do you just say, well, maybe things will turn around, or you just eat it and sell it? Right. And if you eat it and sell it, that could change the supply of the market as well. I, I That is something that I am keeping an eye on. I, I saw this guy, kind of interesting, he, he has like a real estate page, and, and he was talking about this. I'm like, I, I want to go back in and look at the numbers closer, because if that is a larger problem, I mean, that could spike the supply, and that, again, increase the supply would help with home prices. And also, too, if people are getting underwater with those where they're they were making money before. Now they got to pay the mortgage, plus have their own house and so forth. They might be saying, "I got to get rid of this quick." Yeah. And I've also seen more people that bought a new house haven't sold the old house because a realtor and, and realtors sometimes a little bit too optimistic. Oh, don't worry about it. You can sell it in a month. You can sell it very quickly. Seven days. Seven days. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not happening any longer. So now some people are stuck with the new home and the existing home. Like the Airbnb, they might say, "I gotta get rid of this. I'll, I'll lower the price because it's it's killing me every month." Yeah. So that could bring down prices, but it takes time. It's not going to happen again next week. It's going to happen over time, uh, as people say, "Okay, I now had this house for three months, four months, six months. I got to cut the price." And the other thing it does too is you think about talking about the supply side of the market. It hurts the demand side of the market because if you look at it as an investor, then you could before make a make a good amount of money off Airbnb. Well, now you can't. So as an investor, why would I buy a home right. to try an Airbnb? It, it, the market's too saturated. I can't make money off it any longer. Now that demand part of the equation is gone. Supply's gone up. Demand's gone down. Again, that's a function of supply and demand. Prices go down in that scenario. Yep. Let's go to the, the phone number. It's going to open the phone lines now. Uh, 833-288-0973. That's 833 833- Two eight eight zero nine seven three, and as always, get you through for that unbiased, no strings attached, fundamental opinion about what you want to talk about. We still want to talk about the uh, debt ceiling chase because if you have been wondering why the yield and the ten-year treasury has been dropping, is because they have stopped issuing notes since we hit the limit. We just hit the debt ceiling, but anticipation of hitting that mark put a lot of downward pressure on yield as demand and purchases. Of the 10-year treasuries increased in anticipation of the debt ceiling. And once the limit is increased, then the government can go back to issuing more 10-year treasuries, and I believe the yield will increase again. Yeah, and because that will mean higher higher rates, will, they'll, they'll do that because they got to you know float more out there, so they got to raise the yield on those. And that's one thing too that because the 10-year treasury yields are coming down, I think that's one reason why. Your riskier investments like your technology, your cryptos are starting to do good because, oh, rates are coming down again. I don't think it's a long-term trend. I, I don't think so either. I mean, I, I don't see how the 10-year treasury continues to fall. I, I don't see how we get to a, under a 3% rate again on the 10-year treasury. I think it's much more likely it goes back to obviously a 4%, 4.5% even on the 10-year note. Uh, especially the Fed, we know, is doing quantitative tightening. So they're sta- starting mm-hmm. to put more bonds onto the market. As you said, that's increasing the supply, and the federal government, once they start issuing 10-year notes again, that'll increase supply even further. And <laughs> I don't know if people have been falling, but we still have a pretty large deficit. We do. I, what, what is that deficit? Uh, I believe it's around <laughs> like a trillion dollars. <laughs> a trillion? 
right? Yeah. Isn't our deficit right now a trillion? Oh, a deficit. For, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, I was saying that. I, I thought you said debt. But no, you, our debt's like $31.4 trillion. trillion right. Right. Our deficit's around a trillion. Trillion. But the thing is with the deficit, what that means is they need to issue about a trillion dollars in debt, and yep. that needs to be bought. Now, it's not going to come out in the form of 10-year notes. They're going to issue different types of t treasuries to, right. to cover that deficit. But the thing is, that's more supply coming out of the market, which higher supply generally could push prices lower. That means prices are lower, yields go higher, bonds move inversely to the, or the bond prices move inversely to the interest rates. You know, and another problem that the, the government has too, I just realized that every month debt comes due. Mm -hmm. They've got to pay that debt off. Uh, Where's that cash coming from? I think, I think they do have, and they said they're really not in deep trouble, I think until September. Because I think they have uh, money coming in. I mean, obviously, April, you have a lot of your receipts are very high from yeah. taxes and so forth. So your cash flow actually increased with the government. So they can last, I believe, it was till September. I thought I saw June. Was and it June? I think June, and then they, they might have to take more drastic actions to push them longer. Yeah, yeah. So maybe it's June is, is step one. And then September, I think September is like, okay, game over. Yeah. I think what actually happens. But um, they do have things going to do, they, they're paying their bills. But you got to remember, too, that they're not issuing new debt, but debt is coming due that they have to use cash to pay off that debt as it, as it matures. Yeah. So, but um, very interesting situation. We'll, we'll, we'll keep track of that as well for people. And we have said that with, we said this last week. It's going to happen. They're going to raise the debt ceiling. They've done it, what, 20 times over the last 25 years. It's 22. Not gonna, 22 times. It's not going to be like, oh, it's not going to happen. Oh, we're going to default. We're not going to default. Um, and, and I, I don't get too political here, but I, I just do want to say like, you can't just have an open checkbook. You, you should have debt limits. You should have it to where, Hey, we, we did too much spending. We got to cut back. You can't just keep spending at that, that rate there. It's, it's, it's not the right thing to do. Well, and this is part of the problem with politics is both Republicans and Democrats don't want to go near social security and Medicare because it's not favorable for them right who's gonna win an election running on the fact that i am going to cut social security <laughs> uh, it's not gonna be good but i i've said for years now i don't understand why we just and you can't do it for people that are like two three years out from right. retirement but you know people in their 50s why don't we change the retirement age on social security and medicare that was built years ago why don't we put in an age adjustment based off life expectancy. That way we don't have to, to make major catastrophic changes to it maybe five years from now. That's the path we're on where we're just running through money and burning cash flow. If we were to actually come up with a plan to change the retirement age and the collection age for Medicare and Social Security for people you know, three, four, five years from now, that would be a huge benefit but nobody wants to touch it because it's not politically favorable and i do believe there's programs that they could cut on and also too i do believe i've read this in the past there's a lot of fraud that goes on with social security and medicare and i knew someone personally who actually they're on dialysis and they said oh well you can do dialysis at home instead of coming to the center all the time but you got to go through this training we have to send you all the equipment uh and she did all that it took about six weeks two months and at the end, after the government paid for all this stuff, the dialysis center said, no, you can't do that. So it's kind of like, and they got paid for both sides and they're still getting paid because had she gone at home, they wouldn't got paid for it, but they forced to go through all this. They sent 
tons of computers and equipment and stuff at home that the government paid for. Uh, no, we're not going to release you from, from our program. There's fraud that goes on yeah. in the government because it's so big, no one really controls it. But that's just one example. That's what we need to do. We, we need like someone that really is on top of things to, to, to watch the numbers, so to speak, and cut programs that just don't make any sense. I mean, you know, the bird that is, <laughs> you know. That's, that should be a nonprofit. Yeah. If somebody yeah. wants to start a nonprofit, yeah, I'm sure people would support that. Yeah. But it, it's, I, I mean, I, I still do believe like the Social Security and Medicare is something that needs to be tackled. It's, you know, we've increased the RMD age. Right. Uh, in theory, that should be the same concept, in my opinion, to Social Security and Medicare. I mean, we're increasing this because life expectancy has increased from decades ago. Yeah, we, we should make an adjustment there. And, and when we first started it, some people weren't even collecting Social Security, or a lot of people yeah. weren't even collecting Social Security. They died before they could really maximize their benefits. Now people collect it for sometimes, gosh, 35, close to 40 years. Right. I mean, that is a huge drain on the Social Security system. And it's, I don't like Social Security to begin with because I think it's an inefficient use of capital, but it's almost like a necessary evil, in my opinion, for a lot of people that do rely on it. It's it's a tough thing I balance with, but I I just I think there needs to be changes to it. But nobody wants to touch it because it's not going to be again uh, a benefit to their campaign. You know what's kind of funny too is we, I was surprised they they raised the RMD the required minimum distribution yeah. age because one thing I always felt like the government's just waiting for those IRAs to come due so they can start collecting tax. Well, by increasing it from what seventy to seventy two. I mean, now they can wait another two years for a lot of people to, to start withdrawing to pay more taxes. I was surprised they did that. I know there's also something in the program that I think it goes to, what, 73 or 74 in a couple more years? Well, 73, and then it goes to 75, I 75. think, in like, gosh, I want to say a few years from now. Yeah, So, because I know I'm going to wait till the very end before I have to pull mine out. We have a lot of clients that, that same way. They don't need it. Uh, but that's a, a lost revenue source for the government, which I do say thank you, government, for doing something smart. And it is for the reason that people are living longer, but it means less revenue for them because they've deferred many times. I mean, I started my first 401k and it was like 25. So. Yeah. I mean, it, net, they probably lost on it. I mean, a few years ago, I think it was what, 2019, 2018, when they passed the first Secure Act, they did make that adjustment to inherited IRAs where you can no longer stretch them, which right. in theory actually can really hurt people's financial situation because, you know, somebody inherits an IRA in their working years now rather than being able to stretch that out through their own retirement. Now they have to get rid of that money in 10 years. Now, if you're in like a mid to high tax bracket, you're having to pull out all that IRA mm -hmm. and almost increasing yourself maybe to the top tax bracket over that 10-year period. It, it, it's, it's something that could be um, a revenue source for the government. I don't think it fully offsets the RMD age increase, but it is something that helped increase revenue, I believe, because now you can't stretch that out. Like if I were to, you know, or inherit your IRA, let's say, I would have to take out on 10 years rather than stretch that out over 60 years, perhaps. Right. And, and, and I don't remember the laws. That's why I have our CFP, our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. But I know one thing you used to be able to do was actually not, I wouldn't put you as a beneficiary, but I'd put your, your child, be my grandchild. You could stretch it out for many, many years. And uh, I don't know if you can still nope. do that. Can't do that. So they can't it has out. to come out in 10 years. 10 years. So they eliminated that completely. Okay. Yeah. And, well, and the nice thing is that it's the same rule with the Roth, but in theory, the best thing you can do with the Roth, and again, I'd have to check with our financial planner, is you just wait till year 10 because it's all tax-free anyway, so you got tax 
free growth for a 10-year period on an inherited Roth IRA. But on that traditional IRA, if you wait 10 years, all of a sudden you could have like a $2 million IRA, let's say, <laughs> and that's a $2 million income bill. So there's a lot more planning that needs to occur with the, uh, the, the rule to the 10-year change there. Yeah, too bad. Uh, well, I know Harrison's going to be calling in pretty soon here, so we can maybe he can answer those questions. Uh, if you like what we're talking about, uh, you can get all this information and more uh, on our newsletter. Again, we're talking about other things on the newsletter that went out uh, yesterday: uh, layoff and uh, layoffs and over hiring. Uh, we also talked about stock-based compensation, the Federal Reserve the climbing attention spans. I mean, all these important things that uh, you get for free from our newsletter. Just go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And when you just see it right in the front page, you'll see right in the middle of the screen, pretty much, you'll see the newsletter on the top bar right next to the podcast bar. So if you missed the show or missed part of it, you want to, or hear it again, you got two things there, newsletter and podcast bar. So phone numbers here. Gosh, uh, slow, slow down the phones. No one's called in yet. Uh, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. And as always, that'll get you through if you're unbiased. No strings attached. Put an opinion about what you want to talk about. And there is Harrison. So let's go to our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. Good morning, Harrison. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, guys. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Well, good, good. I see today we're talking about shared equity agreements. I don't want to share my equity with anybody. What, what are we talking about here? <laughs> Should so a shared equity agreement <laughs> is a way to uh, get money out of your house, similar to a HELOC or a mortgage would. Um, there are companies out here that will give you cash uh, for the equity, but unlike mortgages or HELOCs, you don't have to pay interest. Instead, you have to give these companies a percentage of your appreciation of your property plus the principal um, of whatever you borrowed when you sell. So the pros of this are while you borrow this money, you don't have to make any payments on it. Um, and if the property goes down in value, you have to repay less. Um, and since this isn't a standard loan, there's not the same underwriting that you have to go through with a loan. So for example, <clears throat> If you have a million dollar house, you might be able to borrow or, or get equity of um, around $170,000, we'll say. And instead of paying interest for that, you have to pay back 50% of whatever the appreciation of that property is at the time of the sale. So here's the problem. Um, you can only access about 15 to 20% of the property value, but the repayment is based on the total property growth not the amount that you're actually borrowing. So in our example, if a property goes up 10% from a million to 1.1 million, and you have to give up half of that growth or $50,000, you're essentially paying 50 grand in order to borrow 170 grand, which is equivalent to an interest rate of like 30%. And since it's not technically interest, you can't deduct it like you can with a mortgage. Um, in addition to that, it's really hard to refinance these things because banks don't want to be a part of it because it kind of messes up the equity that you have in it. Um, so really the only way to get out of something like this is to sell or come up with a huge amount of cash um, in addition to the you know principal that, that you borrowed. So it's, it's almost like um, leveraged uh, shorting your house. And so I've had people ask about this. I've, I've seen people that have got into these things and um, you really want to be aware of what you're signing on to because, you know, getting cash with no payments 
payments sounds nice, but you really have to understand what you're giving up for that cash that you're getting now. And, and Harrison, I, I do think this is probably a good time to do it. Chase and I were talking earlier about real estate. I, I just don't think you'll see much appreciation in the next, uh, in, the, in the years to come. So you're not going to be, from what I think, a lot of sharing of, of uh, appreciation won't be a lot there. But, but am I hearing too that you might have to pay this back before you sell the home? Because that could put you in a cash crunch. You can. Um, different companies have different terms, but it's usually a term of like 30 years. So it's just at the time you sell the property or uh, 30 years is when you have to pay it back. And I agree with you, Brent, there might not be a lot of appreciation in the housing market given everything. But again, it's even a, a tiny bit of appreciation on the house is really large relative to the amount you're borrowing because you're borrowing such a small percentage of the house. So it's really like you know, even a, a 1% increase in property value could be, you know, um, uh, equivalent to a pretty high interest rate. So, uh, uh, so a 1% appreciation rate, why would that be a high interest rate? Because it's on the whole amount of the house where you're not getting. So if you have a million dollar home, 1% would be what? 100,000. 100,000. 10 grand. 10 grand. 10 yeah. grand 1% yeah. of a, a million, 10 grand. But if you only borrowed, let's say $100,000, now you have to pay back $10,000 to borrow that hundred, which is like a 10% interest rate, even though your home only went up 1%. You know, again, I always come back to the same answer. <clears throat> this is why you need a good financial planner because you really <laughs> work through these numbers. And that's, that's <laughs> exactly why these companies work is because you look, okay, I've only got to give up a percentage of my property growth. But when you look at it, why would I want what I have to pay back be based on the total asset itself and not the cash that I'm actually getting from it. That'd be like you getting a mortgage and you know, the, the mortgage payback is, is based on what the property does, not the, the dollars that you actually borrow. So any interest you pay should be on the amount you borrow, not, not the assets that it's collateralized against. And, and I see people getting into these and not realizing what they are. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, I've, I've got a situation right now where, um, I'm meeting with somebody on Monday and they did one of these things when their house was like 700 grand and now it's worth like 1.1 million. So they have a huge amount um, to pay back and they tried to refinance when interest rates were really low. But then as soon as the bank saw that they had this agreement on there, they dropped the application and said, no, nope, we don't want anything to do with that. Um, and so now they're they're stuck with their normal mortgage plus the, the shared equity agreement on their house and um, there's not really a, an easy way to get out of it. So it's something to be very cautious of. You want to make sure you fully understand how these numbers actually work before you, you know, just take cash because you don't have to make payments on it right away. And it is worse than shorting stocks in my opinion because as you said, Harrison, it's on the whole, like, it's almost wow. like leveraging that it's short. like a leverage. Right. Yeah, that, it's a leverage short. Yeah. It, it's, it's something that... <laughs> You're gambling, and, and I mean, while again, we're we believe housing prices are expensive, why we think they'll go down. Gosh, as you said, it goes up one, two, three percent, and let's say, maybe even let's say it goes down five percent, but you don't get out necessarily, and all of a sudden it turns around ten years from now, it is five percent higher. Well, it's like, well, shoot. <laughs> it, it, that's why I would never recommend shorting. And people, oh well, if the things go down, you make money. Well, yeah, no crap. You know, right. if things go down, you make money off shorting. <laughs> oh, crap. Yeah. I, you know, I, I can't say the other word on radio. But the thing is, you have to, again, get into timing the market, which never works. 
you're going to make the wrong decisions, especially on a primary residence. That house should not be viewed as a gambling chip. That is just something I would never, ever recommend somebody do. I, I mean, it's almost where you would have to do it for a lifetime commitment because to get out of it, it's a problem. To borrow against it sounds like it's a problem. And, and Harrison, real quick before I let you go, is this good estate planning tool or a bad estate planning tool? I would say bad because in this case, you know, if you pass and then this asset goes to your kids, um, they are going to have to sell the property and then give up a substantial chunk of it. I mean, it's, I would say this is like a worse reverse mortgage is kind of the way it is. Um, you know, you're better off doing a reverse mortgage because in that case you also don't have to make payments, but you at least know what the payback is going to be. It's going to be an interest rate based on the amount that you're borrowing, not, um, you know, an amount based on the property value, which, you know, could go up and could go down, but you really don't know. So it's and here's another the only the only benefit I guess from an estate planning perspective is that could if you have um, estate tax issues because you're worth a lot of money, um, it could reduce how much estate tax you pay because you're losing so much of it. But that's generally not a, a good way to go about it. So, and I guess the other thing too is that um, it, when you do pass, that does come due right away. And if the kids want to keep that house, if they don't have the money to pay that off, it's too bad. you got to sell that house to pay off the partner, we'll call them, in the equity shared agreement. Yeah, or come up with a, a huge amount of money um, in order to pay them off, wow. so, which which most people, I think, would have a difficult time doing. Yeah. Well, very, very interesting. Uh, again, I didn't like, I said I didn't want to share my equity with anybody. I guess I was right on that. It's not, there's probably certain times this is good, but not a lot of times. I think probably more people get in, into them and regret it later on. I think it's like insurance. There's a reason they're doing it. You know, yeah. <laughs> I think the companies kind of vet these a little bit and there's a reason they're doing it is to make money and somebody's got to make money on the deal. And most of the time I think it's the company doing it makes the money, not the person yeah. that's getting the cash from it. And as I said in the beginning, that's why you need a good financial planner like Harrison Johnson. Harrison, thank you very much. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll uh, talk to you on Monday. Okay. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Uh, again, as uh, Harrison Johnson, he's our financial planner. He is a CFP. Uh, he is not on a, a commission basis. He doesn't sell product. He is a fee-based planner. Uh, no commission splits there or anything. If you want to give him a call and talk to him directly, <clears throat> you can do that at the office, 858 546-4306, that's 858-546-4306, or go to that website, smartinvesting2000.com, that's smartinvesting2000.com, and you do get a free consultation with him to talk about how financial planning can help you, and so many, Chase, so many different places that people can trip up on. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean there, there's so many things that, that you don't even think of because, you know, I, I was talking to a client yesterday and she was looking at doing a 401k loan. I was saying the 401k loans I hate just to begin with, but, you know, she needed the capital for paying something off. And I was like, well, if you take it from here, and Harrison came up with that idea as well, because if you looked at the tax benefits of doing the distribution from the investment account instead of the 401k, it, it saved you a lot of money in taxes. And it, it's so worthwhile because there's things that you don't even think of. You're like, ah, I don't need a financial planner. You could be missing out on thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands right. of dollars over the course of your lifetime because of little mistakes that you make that you don't even realize. And, and, and again, you can't know 
about everything. And that, that's why we have Harrison. Uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine last night at dinner and I said, yeah, I said, you need to go to Harrison because, and I've been managing his money for probably 25 years. I said, I don't, I, I don't know everything about the financial planning side. I said, I focus on investing, which takes a lot of time. Well, I mean, we know a lot about our companies and a lot about investing, but there's a whole nother world out there to put together your financial plan, your estate plan. And that's all Harrison focuses on. He doesn't focus on the investment side. He focuses on all these different ways to do the financial planning. And we he doesn't do financial planning to get assets under management. He does financial planning to do financial planning. Unique in the industry. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Or selling annuities. Or selling annuities, <laughs> exactly. Phone numbers here. Gosh, what a slow day. 843, and we've got no phone calls yet. I, I guess we'll wait until five minutes till when we can't take the calls. Phone numbers here, 833 Two eight eight zero nine seven three. That's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. Chase, uh, Chevron did report uh, I, I, I record profits, uh, doubling it and so forth. They're buying back seventy five billion dollars of stock. Uh, I, you know, I thought maybe uh, we talk a little bit about uh, uh, Chevron here because the question is: Is Chevron still a buy? Uh, should begin in Chevron. Uh, they're going to be beaten up on, oh, well, they are already. Oh, <laughs> how could you make such big profits? Does the government and these people forget what three years ago, two years ago, they were losing money? Or do they forget that they just have completely demonized this company and demonized oil and it takes time to produce oil? So <laughs> why would you invest money in something that? the government doesn't want to even have be around by 2035. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's just, and people just, businesses are in business to make money. Yeah. Uh, and the way they make money is by offering a product that is worthwhile. That's that, that can serve everybody and the consumer wins and the company gets paid a profit for doing that. Well, they've done that. They, they came through with oil at a great time when we needed it. <clears throat> so therefore, they got big profits. Good. Congratulations to them. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I did look up. I, I don't. I just saw we have Tim calling there. Did yeah. you want to go through the numbers for Chevron or? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go just real quickly because uh, Tim, can you hold for a couple minutes? We just want to kind of finish our little thing here on Chevron because uh, Chevron, their symbol is CVX. Uh, I, I'm looking here only 0.8 percent on the float, so no one's shorting this. 72 percent uh, institutional owned. The PE ratio is 10.2. That is above the industry at 6.8. Price to sales 1.5. More expensive than the industry at 0.6. Price to book value 2.3 versus 4.9. That's better than the industry. Price to cash flow checks in at 7.5 versus 3.6. And their PEG ratio, pretty good, 0.7 versus 1.7. Now, here's the numbers. I'll make sure that these are for, these may not be updated because they just reported. Yeah. I'm not sure if our program updated these or not, but prior to this, the earnings per share were up 116%, the industry up 111%. Sales climbed by 459 not quite as good as the industry up 489 They were paying a 3.4% dividend. I believe they also wrote, increased the dividend, if I'm, I'm not mistaken. Uh, the payout ratio then is only 31.7. Um, looking at the balance sheet here, you got a current ratio of 1.4 versus 1.3. 
debt to equity, very good, 0.2 versus 0.4. Net profit margin, 15.1 versus 8.8. And people complain about that profit margin. That's not as high as Apple and some of these other companies, you know. So don't beat them up because they got a 15% profit margin. Return on equity, 21.5 versus 22.3. Other thing, too, here. Current price for Chevron, $179.45. The 52-week high is $189.68. And the low, $128.07. Year-to-date, the stock's actually flat. I I do see they were down, gosh, 4.4% yesterday. I think there were some issues with the oil and perhaps the energy market uh, that could have taken the, the stocks lower there. But I do go out to December 2024. I see estimated earnings per share of $14.65. Would give us a target sell price of $243.19. Trade debt of forward PE of about 12.25. The big thing I look at though is earnings are declining. This year, estimated earnings per share for 2023, they're estimated to be down 17.6% from 2022. 2024, they're estimated to decline again of 5.6%. So these could be peak profits for Chevron and the big energy companies as 2022 is kind of an interesting year. I do, again, think oil prices are going to go back up a little bit, but I, I think the, the peak profits could have happened in 2022. Yeah, and, and I don't think I'd probably put a buy on this. I'd probably was put it on hold. And I know a lot of people know that we started pairing back a little bit on our energy companies that, yeah. that, that we have there. So, all right, uh, let, let's go out to or down to Mission Valley and speak with Tim. Tim, you're on the Smart Vegetable, Brent Chase. How can we help you out? Yeah, hi guys. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, looking at uh, Intel, uh, and uh, they've taken a little beating in the last uh, few days, <clears throat> and wondering what you're thinking for the future of it. Uh, Intel's a, a difficult situation. Chase and I talked about this after the the conference call and listened to the CEO and so forth. Intel's having like an uphill battle. We'll, we'll go over the numbers here for you and talk more about it as we go on. But it's really dependent on the new CEO, the new executive team. Can they do what they're promising to do? And he, the CEO has laid out some very uh, good initiatives, which seem to be attainable, um, but it's going to come down to that. Looking at the numbers for Intel, we do see that, uh, and this is surprising, only 1.8% is short. You would think it'd be higher uh, than what it, that is, but that's that's not bad at all. Institutional ownership is a 64%. The PE ratio now is only 8.7 versus 18.7. Uh, price to sales, 1.7 versus 4.5. Price to book value, 1.8 versus 286. And then price to cash flow, 8.5 versus 13.5. Now we have seen their earnings fall by 33.5% when the industry is up 36.6. Sales declined by 12%, industry up 10.8. The five-year estimated growth rate for uh, Intel, based on the analysts, is a negative 25% versus positive 10.2. And this tells me that the analysts, as an average, don't think that they can turn things around, but that is coming from a very high earnings growth rate, so that that, that could change there going forward. Uh, they do pay a nice dividend, 5.2%, uh, only use 44.5% of their earnings to pay that out. There is talk, could that dividend be cut? Well, Jason, I'll talk about uh, that a little bit more. Uh, we do see on the, the balance sheet, current ratio 1.8 versus 2.8, debt to equity, very good, 0.4 versus 0.6. And they have a net profit margin, still pretty good, of 19.1 versus 23.3. Chase? And I will say those were for Q3, not Q4, yeah, so yeah. we don't have those numbers in yet. Hopefully I'll have those next week. I, Perhaps. Sometimes yeah. I know it depends on their filings because that's where they pull it from. So They, they want to make sure they get good numbers, not, yeah. Yeah. So. 
But current price here for Intel, $28.16. 52-week high, $52.51. And 52-week lows, $24.59. Now, here's the crazy part. Still up 6.5% year-to-date, even with what I'm going to call an abysmal earnings report for, for Q4 there. And I think a lot of that is coming from the fact that I believe Intel has just been beaten up so much already that there was so much negativity built into it. And even with the stock price on Friday, yesterday, it was down 6.4%. Initially, it was down more than like 10% for yep. some of the, the morning. I think that there was just so much negativity already built into it that I think a lot of people that already hit Intel already sold the stock. So I, I think there could perhaps be a floor on the, the price of Intel because... I think it's just already gone so low. It's now smaller than AMD. It's smaller than NVIDIA. It's smaller than all the other kind of major chip companies out there, which is, again, could perhaps be a, a good valuation indicator for the company. And, and also, too, I want to point out, too, I just noticed that as well, the S&P year-to-date is up 6%, so as bad as Intel is, they're still ahead of the S&P 500, <laughs> which is kind of surprising. <laughs> yeah, but uh, looking forward to December 2024. Now, we are going out that extra year. Estimated earnings per share, $2.03. We use that to get our 16.6 multiple for our target sell price. Gives us a target sell of $33.70. Now, one thing I will point out, the discrepancy between the high and the low, extremely large right now. High, $4.75. Low, just $0.70 cents in 2024. So there's a wide, wide range there. And how many analysts was that? 32. 30. That's, that's quite a few. Uh, and again, that wide range does concern us because it means that number that you gave, eh, maybe not quite as strong. And I have seen, and I, I don't have my, my 2024 pulled up. I see 2023, uh, 90 days ago, they're down like 24% of the earnings estimates. So those are coming down. Uh, so we'll see if they can tighten up. But that is one thing that worries us, those wide ranges. Yeah, and it, it, it's... It's something that's very interesting with Intel. Obviously, they rely heavily on the PC market. And and one thing that we looked at that, um, frankly, we should have been more on top of is the, the decline in PCs that occurred mm -hmm. after COVID was kind of something that we were worried about. But, you know, I guess we didn't talk about enough on the show here with these chip companies that are heavily involved in PCs. That's really dented demand. So now Intel, they're going through this heavy investment cycle during a difficult time for the industry. And one thing that I'm going to be very interested on is is when AMD and NVIDIA report, because Intel talked about how difficult things were for the industry, are AMD and NVIDIA still having problems with the industry as well? We do know AMD did likely take some market share from Intel, but overall, did they see the same industry headwinds that Intel saw? And, and also too, Tim, I mean, one thing that we look at rely a lot on is the analyst. And, and we talked about how we probably missed the fact that PC sales are so high. Well, so did 30 analysts because they should have brought their earnings way down. I don't know if they were asleep at the wheel. Uh, when we were looking at it, we were saying, well, they got all these other factors as well that's going on, but the PC sales were so big. And now they got this big backup of inventory that they got to work through that. They said, I think it's going to take about six months. Yeah. So Tim, I forgot to ask you, do you own it or looking at buying it? I, I own it. Okay. I own it, and uh, of course, it's dropped quite a bit on the last two years or so. And <clears throat> I would hate to sell it at this point. Right. Um, yeah. To, right now, I would uh, say Intel. I, I'd like to see more data, especially from the AMD's and Nvidia's. I would rate Intel a hold at this point. I wouldn't sell it. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be accumulating just yet. Obviously, that could change quite quickly over the next week or two, depending on new data that comes out. But 
right now I, I'd, I'd place it at a hold for for Intel. And, and the other thing too that Jason are talking about as well, because this this, this government program that came out with these billions of dollars, we're still unsure. What we have what was it five thousand pages, whatever. Um, is the government actually going to give like Intel a couple billion dollars? Because that could help out a lot. Because mm -hmm. a lot of their expenses now are in capital expenditures. Well, if you get we'll say two billion dollars from the government, you won't spend as much on capital expenditures. So we got to see how that works. And, and the other thing too that that analysts really didn't like was the contraction in gross margin. They've been talking about mm -hmm. that for years. They, they they said, oh my gosh, they have a three handle, which means they're looking for a 39% gross margin in Q1. Most of the time it's in the 50s. But the problem is Intel has such a high fixed expense base that when sales go down, your expenses don't go down as quickly. So your gross margin contracts. But when sales go back up, your expenses don't go up as quickly. Right. So your gross margin expands. I, I, I think Intel could have a, a bumpy road here perhaps over the next six months. But I think it could be a great story over the next two, three, four years. It's hard to look out to 2024, 2025, but that in theory is when that investment and cycle for Intel should slow and they should have new businesses coming online as well. Yeah, and I think 2023 is going to be a proving year for Intel. Yeah. And I think by January 1 of 2024, I think the story will be told, can they make it, did they make it? But you're going to have a rough time, I think, in 2023. And that's why well, we're I saying still so think old. it would be can they make it because 2024 that year 2025 is when the plans are supposed to be in place so i can't say right. did they make it but will they make it i think <laughs> it'll be more clear but 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 i i wouldn't say get out of it because i i, I think there's some potential uh, percentage wise how much does it make up in your portfolio Oh, two, three percent. Okay, okay. So yeah, I'd, I'd be comfortable. Holding and I, I will say the other yeah. thing is they have Mobileye still, and they they sent Mobileye out on the stock market, mm -hmm. and kind of more evaluation on it. One thing I was thinking about actually this morning is they could leverage that for capital. If Mobile Mobileye's done very well, oh yeah. If Mobileye continues to do well, they still own shares in it to help with capital needs. They could sell some of their shares in Mobileye to cover some of their other costs and create some available cash for the company as yeah. well. And I was surprised. I did not hear them mention. Maybe I missed it. Uh, very on, brief. Uh, oh, very brief. <laughs> so I missed it on the conference call. Is what I'm going to say. I didn't hear much talk about Mobileye, but you said very brief that they. Uh, and Mobileye, I believe, has their own conference call now as well. Yeah. And I think they floated, what, 20% of their... I think they still own somewhere around like yeah, 75, 85% of it, 75, 90%. No, it's a pretty large range, but they, they still own a good amount of, of Mobileye there. A large majority of it, I should say. Yeah, so, so, so they that, could use that again as capital if they need capital infusion. They have that that out there now because Mobile has a market cap right now of about twenty eight point seven billion. I think initially it was like fifteen billion is when they they got that initial bid on the stock market. And that's only in the twenty percent. We'll call it twenty twenty five percent of stock they floated out there. So they hold the other. We'll call it eighty percent. Make it easy. Mm -hmm. So you put a market cap on that in in the company. Gosh. That I means their other assets in Intel are very low. Right. Be because actually, I think their market cap, I didn't see it there, I think it's about $115 billion. Uh -huh. So with Mobileye, Mobileye could be yeah more than half of that. Right. Yeah. So it, it, it's an interesting oh. story. And that, that's why I, I would not jump out of it. I think it's worth holding on to. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yep. Okay. All right, Tim. All right, guys. Hey, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, kind of a long explanation for that, but it is a complicated situation that you kind of have to kind of look at deeply. And, and that's what we tell people before we buy a company, it's 10, 15, 20 hours of research. There's so many things to look at. And even when you own a company, when those conference calls come out, you've got to really dig into them and look at the numbers and what, what are they saying? What's really going on? Because 
if you don't do that, you're going to be blindsided down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so important to look at the numbers and, you know, there, there's things that, especially from an accounting perspective, that, that you have to understand how it impacts earnings, how it impacts cash flow, how it's going to impact as well this year's earnings versus next year's earnings, because that could be a big, big difference. Yep. Well, there's a closing bell. So thank you for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only. and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs or have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. And be sure to visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. A lot of great information there, like the newsletter, podcasts, and so forth. And for more daily educational information on investment tips, go to our Facebook page, Smart Investing with Brent and Chase Wilsey. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the show. And we'll talk to you more next time on the Smart Investing Show. Toot